0: Plushcare dot com slash weight loss.
1: Ladies and gentlemen,
2: the President of the United States. On Friday, the eleventh of November. President Joe Biden stood up to speak at the COP27 climate summit in Egypt.
3: Folks, now I know this has been a difficult few years. The interconnected challenges we face can feel all-consuming. Challenges
2: like the global energy crisis, exacerbated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Europe, a continent that's historically relied heavily on Russian oil and gas, scrambled for alternative sources of energy and just ended up finding even more fossil fuels. In his speech at COP27, President Biden suggested that the energy crisis should in fact be seen as an opportunity.
3: Against this backdrop, it's more urgent than ever that we double down on our climate commitments. Russia's war only enhances the urgency of the need to transition the world off its dependence on fossil fuels.
2: The transition to clean energy is not only important for reducing carbon emissions, it can also help with energy security.
3: True energy security means every nation, means that every nation is benefiting from clean, diversified energy future. No action, no action can be taken without a nation understanding that it can use energy as a weapon hold the global economy hostage, it must stop. And so this gathering must be the moment to recommit our future and our shared capacity to write a better story for the world. But with fossil fuels currently on the rise,
2: is all of this just wishful thinking? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, the Economist Science Correspondent. This is the penultimate episode of our four-part series covering the COP27 Climate Summit. We've been examining the key climate issues guided by our in-house experts as they report from the summit in Egypt's Sharm el-Sheikh. In today's episode, how the energy crisis has affected action on climate change, Have the events of the past year only served to increase the world's dependence on fossil fuels? Or is President Biden right? Could this moment of energy crisis actually become an opportunity? With me once again are Vijay Vethiswaran, The Economist's Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor, and Katrine Brahek, our Environment Editor, who joins us this week from Sharm El Sheikh. Hello to you both. Hi, Alok. Hi, Alok. Katrine, first and most important question for you. When we spoke to Vijay at COP27 last week, he was bemoaning the lack of access to coffee. I know that your French blood won't let you operate without coffee. Have you found any?
1: There's not a whole lot of it, to be honest. And equally concerning to my French genes is the fact that there's very little food as well. So no
2: food, no coffee. No food, How no are coffee. you surviving?
4: Although I will say that um, at the end of the week of having suffered through no coffee at the media centre, can you imagine, 3,000 plus journalists with no coffee on hand, 45-minute long queues to try to pay for overpriced coffee at the little grab-and-go outlets that they had for us. When I managed to get hold of a pass to attend Joe Biden's speech at the end of the week, find out that there is this very delightful delegate's dining room, which is like eating at a Michelin-starred restaurant with uh, very
2: fancy amenities. It's one rule for the posh people, Vijay. You just didn't make, and then one rule for the rest of you.
1: There's always a delegates joining room. There's always another
4: level.
2: You can see that Vijay is still scarred from this whole experience, even though he's back in America. That's right. But Katrine, getting back to the conference, week two has just started. Anything been grabbing your attention at the summit? Anything that we've talked about earlier that has come to fruition yet?
1: Definitely not come to fruition, uh, the term that was used to describe to me the state of play as week two got started was molasses in terms of basically the whole UN process. A few things that we've mentioned before, we have now had some kind of very preliminary text on what might be said about loss and damage. But frankly, the options right now on the table are First of all, to create a facility, a financial facility for loss and damage. And the second option is to not create such a facility. So we're pretty much nowhere on that. So all
2: the options are available, basically.
1: All all (laughs) things are available there. There was um, one thing that grabbed headlines yesterday. Uh, This was the announcements from the G7 and in particular led by Germany for Global Shield facility, which is a sort of an insurance type facility for vulnerable countries that they could tap into after extreme disasters that have been linked to climate change. Pakistan, in particular, is due to be the first recipient. And the total sum there that we're talking about so far is 210 million euros, which is being denigrated as basically nowhere near enough just for context. Pakistan's total economic losses as a result of its floods this summer were on the order of 30 billion. So much, much more is needed there
2: and so orders of magnitude difference in what's actually needed compared to what's actually been committed so far. But we are only halfway through. Vijay, you've just left the meeting and you're back in America now. What did you see in your last few days at the conference? And and what are you expecting from the coming week? Well, you know, the first
4: week really is the week when there's a lot of Announcements, the real hard work of political negotiation, that's yet to come. But we did see, I think, a lot of momentum building for different sorts of funds for adaptation for coalitions of private sector companies working together on carbon markets and initiatives announced, including by the United States, for a a kind of carbon credit scheme where we're gonna see how the details unfold related to switching off of dirty energy towards renewables, which might in an official way generate high quality credits for companies to buy offsets. So initiatives like that, that may take off in coming months. And of course we saw at the very end of the first week Joe Biden turned up to give a speech. He was on the ground for only three hours uh, on his way to Asia.
2: You were in the room when he gave a speech, right? How was it received?
4: Uh, That's right. Yes, I was in the plenary hall to see Joe Biden give his speech. And normally, American presidents are not particularly welcome at these gatherings, at least not of late. America has, let's remember, pulled out of the UN process on climate change twice first under George W. Bush and second under Donald Trump. And generally speaking, the issue this year, the loss and damage question, uh, the U.S. has not been keen on doing this. There's no political chance in hell that America will sign up to anything that smacks of reparations. And so as a result, this is always going to be received badly, any speech by an American president, by many in the developing world, for example, the small island states and, and many NGOs, But in the event, in the room, actually a good number of people cheered and he got quite a lot of applause from some quarters because this time America, unlike in Glasgow a year ago, is turning up with some gas in the tank. The American government has credibility. It has passed the most ambitious climate legislation, certainly in American history, and arguably one that's going to up the ambition for Europe, for other countries because of its level of Subsidy and support for clean energy, but also because of what it signals about America's willingness to come back on the stage.
2: Katrine, how has Joe Biden's speech sort of reverberated in the conference halls so far for you? I mean, have you spoken to people who have praised it and and talked about America's new stance?
1: Well, actually, when people here are talking about Joe Biden at the minute, it's really got more to do with his movements after leaving Sharm el Sheikh, where he flew on to Bali in order to attend the G20 and most notably on. Monday, so yesterday he had a, a first bilateral with Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, and you know there were pictures of Xi and Biden shaking hands. For instance, it seems like nothing at all. It's the kind of tiny little detail that people really put a lot of attention and importance into because if you have the world's two largest emitters talking about climate change, then everybody else further down feels a little bit more confident about the process. So that has been seen as as generally a positive thing.
2: Well, Vijay, that's an example of geopolitics intruding into the climate question. What do you make of that?
4: Well, you're absolutely right. Of course, it's a reminder that geopolitics has stuck its ugly snout into these COP summits where we dream about a much better future and all of us coming together and, and solving the world's problems. Well, the messy reality is that in the last 12 months, we've seen energy geopolitics oil shocks. We've seen uh, the gas crisis in Europe. But in some ways, we do see that leads to a kind of joined up thinking because we're bringing the worlds of geopolitics and climate together rather than seeing them in isolation. One concrete step forward I think we're seeing as a result of this geopolitical gathering in Indonesia is a very interesting deal called the Just Energy Transition Partnership, or JETP that the U.S., Japan, and other countries a part of the G7 have announced with Indonesia. Now, Indonesia is a huge coal-consuming country. It's also a massive coal exporter, not as big as China as far as a threat to climate, but getting up there, especially as a rising, growing power. And the good news is that under this deal, Indonesia has agreed to a significant amount of change in direction. Again, if the details are worked out and the roughly $20 billion deal proceeds as hoped for, we might well see an acceleration in Indonesia moving off of coal and a ramp up of clean energy to replace that coal as the country continues to grow in coming years.
1: And we should add that There's other countries in the lineup for these as well. Once Indonesia has done its own deal, we're hoping that Vietnam, India and Senegal are next in the lineup.
4: You're absolutely right, Kat. Vietnam is in train, although the reason it didn't get announced during the ASEAN meeting that preceded the recent uh, G20 meeting is because Vietnam is playing hardball, is the word that I'm hearing. Let's not forget an Indian minister at COP26 said, if you want India to clean up, we demand a trillion dollars from the world. So I think it's going to be a lot harder to reach agreement with uh, perhaps those countries. But the hope is there that if there's a template that works and Indonesia can show some success, that countries will want to sign on for the momentum that it represents.
2: Okay, Vijay, Katrin, I think all of that sounds pretty good, even if it's baby steps. Uh, So thank you both very much for now. Throughout this series, we've discussed how the organizers of this year's COP have tried to change the focus of the meeting compared with previous summits. This year, for example, the world's big oil and gas companies have been invited, rather than being advised to steer clear. It's a political decision to include them, but also a practical one. In the past year, the world, and in particular Europe, has been plunged into an energy crisis. To understand the crisis in Europe better, Let's wind the clock all the way back to the Cold War.
5: In the Soviet Union, enormous new reserves of gas and oil have been discovered in Siberia. With enough pipelines, they believe Siberia could become a powerhouse for much of Europe, West as well as East.
2: In 1970, West Germany and the Soviet Union entered into a partnership over oil and gas.
5: Under the terms of the deal, West Germany will get a 20-year supply of Siberian gas. In exchange, it will provide 1240 miles of 52-inch steel tube for the pipeline.
2: They agreed to expand the Druzhba pipeline, known as the Friendship pipeline, to provide West Germany with Soviet natural gas. By the time the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, a third of West Germany's gas came from the Soviet Union. By the start of 2022, Russian gas accounted for two-thirds of Germany's supply. And the European Union as a whole relied on Russia for around 40% of its gas and millions of barrels per day of crude oil. While the bloc was focused on going green domestically, importing gas and oil made sense. But after Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine in February of this year, Western countries were left with few options other than to reduce their dependence on Russian energy.
6: Yeah, so the first thing that many governments have done is try to get the oil and gas from somewhere
2: else. Nicolas Hearn is a climate scientist and the co-founder of the New Climate Institute, a think tank based in Germany. He's participated in international climate negotiations for nearly three decades.
6: So many of them have gone shopping around the world uh, to get new supplies. They are building a lot of new infrastructure to get uh, liquidified uh, natural gas to Europe. That apparently is the most simple thing, that's why it's happening a lot. On the other hand, uh, the more long term solution to the problem would be to be more energy efficient, to use less Gas or uh, oil, or uh, to support renewable energy and energy efficiency. So, saving energy and renewable energy is always a more yeah, complicated option. It's more um, diverse, and uh, you have to take more, more difficult decisions. And maybe that's one reason why it's not uh, really done.
2: So, out of those three options, looking for alternative sources of fossil fuels was seen to be the fastest and safest way to ensure that Europe has enough energy, at least in the short term. And the most popular alternative? Well, that was liquefied natural gas, or LNG. Natural gas has been most commonly transported to Europe in huge pipelines, like the Nord Stream pipes from Russia to Germany. But LNG means that gas can be placed into tanks aboard ships. It can therefore arrive from much further away from countries such as Qatar or Australia. And now even America is ramping up its exports too. For example, from the gas fields of Texas and Louisiana.
6: What you do is you take the gas and you cool it down and put a lot of pressure on it. And then it becomes liquid. And you put that into a ship and then you can ship it across the world, basically from anywhere to anywhere. And that's the big advantage. The disadvantage is that it takes a lot of energy to cool it down. You lose a lot of gas and that then makes it very carbon intensive. So LNG has much more emissions than uh, pipeline gas. In addition, usually LNG comes from unconventional gas sources. That's you need a lot of energy to get the gas out of the ground anyway. And you need a lot of chemicals to do that. And in the end, that gas actually has a higher climate impact than coal, which then also doesn't really make it a very good alternative.
2: Once ships carrying LNG arrive at their destinations, special facilities, which are known as regasification terminals, are required to pump the liquid off the ships and turn it back into useful gas. If European countries want to use more LNG, however, they'll need new infrastructure to do it.
6: The idea of importing LNG, so liquidified natural gas, to Europe has been on the table for a long time. But people were not building new import terminals because, well, we thought we have enough infrastructure and we don't need it. Now with Russian gas, many countries are building new import terminals, so where the ships with LNG would come and basically unload their liquidified natural gas. And this infrastructure is very expensive.
2: When Russia invaded Ukraine, Germany had no regasification terminals. Soon after, Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced that Germany planned to build two new facilities. The building process will start this year and we are discussing with the, with the companies that are doing this that they should try to hurry up and we are working on changing the legal scenario of this uh, activity that it can be done in, in a shorter time as it usually would take. In the meantime, the country has rented several floating terminals. If you have this LNG
6: terminal where LNG is imported, it can be this floating terminal and you can rent it for let's say five years. But then still you need to build a pipeline from that terminal to then the grid and you need to uh, then distribute the gas. That's also permanent infrastructure.
2: Some people are therefore worried that all this new infrastructure won't be as temporary as has been suggested.
6: So long-term supply contracts is the usual way how you do that. You don't make a supply contract for five years, you make it for 20 years. And that's what's basically happening. When you build a new infrastructure for uh, new gas, that is really new. And once it's new, you want to use it for a long period of time. And that's the real danger of it.
2: According to Nicholas, the energy crisis has set back climate action.
6: I think for climate, we we are so late in in uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions that we need to go into emergency mode. And on climate, we are not yet doing that. However, on the energy crisis, you can clearly see we are in emergency mode. The governments are acting. They're acting very fast, drastic, and they do things that are outside of what was imaginable before. And one could have used this momentum to do the right thing. But unfortunately, a lot of that momentum goes in the wrong direction. And I would hope that the focus is again on emergency mode on climate, because if you are on that one, you solve the energy crisis kind of on the side.
2: But there are those who think that the world is on the right track.
5: In the very short term, naturally, Countries as trying to find a ready substitute of the gas they cannot import anymore.
2: That's Francesco La Camera, the Director General of the International Renewable Energy Agency. He made some time to speak to us from the very crowded halls of COP27.
5: Governments are trying to adapt in the short term and find solutions in the short period to provide the services that the citizens ask as eating and cooling and giving energy to, to the company, to the transport, etc. So we think that uh, this uh, uh, way will uh, stay not for much time. And uh, immediately after, we will uh, assist to an acceleration of uh, the transition as uh, I'm trying to, to, to explain.
2: Francesco and his organisation think that the energy crisis has accelerated the transition towards clean energy.
5: What is also happening is that uh, the difference on the price between fossil fuel and renewables are increasing dramatically. So this is also a force that will apply in the uh, short period to slow the process on trying to revive very old coal plants.
2: He said the world needed to triple its investment in renewables. Recent market trends may help,
5: and this uh, for a very simple reason. You know that renewables has been considered to be the cleanest way to produce electricity. It's also true that uh, working on the uh, rapid energy transition can bring uh, uh, benefits in terms of the GDP. Now there is also another strong element to push government to renewables. And this new element is the energy security.
2: Renewables are ubiquitous. The sun shines and the wind blows everywhere, albeit at different strengths and at different times. Battery storage or power grids that are built and connected across national boundaries all mean that countries in future won't have to rely so much on a small number of places that control most of the fossil fuels.
5: For sure, we will have more actors on, uh, on the markets. It will be easier to guarantee energy security because no one can really dominate the market and cartelize the market itself.
2: The economic and security arguments to move to a clean energy system are becoming increasingly compelling even if governments are not prioritising climate goals. But investment is needed, since the energy transition requires almost entirely new infrastructure.
5: We have uh, an infrastructure system that was developed to serve the old fossil fuel centralised market. Now we have to go to a new one,
2: That means that investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure, such as LNG, would seem to be counterproductive.
5: In our point of view, investing in new LNG may uh, uh, encounter the risk to invest in stranded assets very soon.
2: Francesco's vision involves creating an energy system based on renewables, complemented by green hydrogen and sustainable biomass. He's aware of the scale of the transformation that's required. But, he says, the energy crisis offers the opportunity to speed up that transition. As fossil fuels become less affordable, they become less attractive for investment. Will all of that be enough, though? Will the energy transition happen quickly enough to meet climate goals? That's coming up.
1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Today on Babbage, we're examining what impact the global energy crisis is having on the climate crisis. I'm joined once again by the economists Vijay Vaithiswaran and Katrine Brahek. Katrine, we've just heard a debate there on whether the energy crisis is accelerating or whether it's set back action on climate change. Where do you stand on that?
1: The IEA, the International Energy Agency, recently released its annual World Energy Outlook report and they run various models looking out over the coming decades for how the energy mix is going to change in coming decades according to different developmental pathways, and also what the consequence for that are obviously on carbon emissions. And the latest report was different to previous ones, shall we say, in that for the first time, it projected a peak in fossil fuel use. So the IEA's report was certainly encouraging. What I'd say there is that We at The Economist had a big cover package that went out not long before the IA's report went out, showing that there's a massive boost in infrastructure investment in the Middle East that perhaps has not been taken into consideration. So I think there's some worrying concerns that would probably shore up Nicholas Hearn's position. And ultimately, I think we're going to have to wait and see where emissions stand in a few years' time. We've seen these blips a few times in the past. Unfortunately, we've always seen rebounds in emissions after the blips.
2: Okay, so wait and see. Vijay, we just heard about how the LNG industry is on the up as a result of the climate crisis for understandable reasons, particularly in America. Now, that is a bit confusing, isn't it? Because there's going to have to be a trade-off between America's LNG exports and President Biden's very ambitious climate agenda.
4: So you're right that there is a tension. Uh, I've got a big piece in The Current Economist on America's exports of LNG and how they might be increased quite dramatically in coming years. And what might be the climate implications? That's the question here, right? Uh, if LNG, which is currently being sucked up by Europe, if that deprives the developing world of those exports, which is what's happening now, Europe is priced that gas at such high levels that a number of developing countries that we're expecting or counting on that are not able to afford it and therefore are fuel searching back to coal. I think uh, we can actually see that a certain amount of natural gas actually uh, as LNG improves the climate outlook as a transition fuel. The caveat to this is you don't want to get locked into fossil fuel infrastructure for the next 40 years, right? So how you build out floating terminals that when that gas is used as a bridge until renewables ramp up, those floating terminals can be sent away from your shores to, let's say, a developing country that's still reliant on natural gas for growth. Those are the kinds of choices that countries like Germany are looking into right now. But if you do it thoughtlessly and just lock in fossil infrastructure, then yes, this could be bad for
2: climate. The head of the International Energy Agency recently wrote a piece for The Economist on how he thinks the energy crisis could actually accelerate the renewable transition. Vijay, do you buy that argument?
4: You know, it's a hopeful thesis, I would say. I was talking about this very topic with Jason Bordoff, an energy policy expert at the Columbia University Climate School, and he had these provocative thoughts.
7: I think the International Energy Agency was right to say that In the long run, we will look back and see this current energy crisis as having accelerated a transition, a recognition that if you were more dependent on an electrified economy, that did not require as much import of hydrocarbons that are exposed to geopolitical risk. It's giving a renewed push to the urgency to build things faster. We need to build so much infrastructure for a clean energy transition. There are many caveats around it, though. Uh, Many of these things are hard to do. They're impacted by other geopolitical factors. The Inflation Reduction Act, for example, which the IEA projects will increase sevenfold electric vehicle sales in the U.S. by 2030. To get those tax credits, you have to have an electric car with a battery, the components of which have nothing to do with China. And right now, China refines and processes 90% roughly of the critical minerals. So there are a host of other barriers to getting this done. And then we should remember, even if the IEA is right, that this is accelerating a transition, the IEA for the first time ever in its outlook says fossil fuel use will peak. And then plateau. It does not find in 2030 or 2035 fossil fuel use falling quickly. Certainly nowhere close to being on track for climate goals like one and a half or even two degrees Celsius warming. So we have a lot more work to do.
2: So Vijay, just before you went to COP27, you were at a major energy industry conference in Abu Dhabi, weren't you? Where you actually talked about all of the geopolitics of this.
4: Uh, That's right, Alec. Um, I had a great conversation with Dan Yergin, uh, the author of The New Map and vice chairman of S&P Global, about the energy crisis and the implications for climate change? Well, first, Vijay, you know, for several months, I thought, well, this really compares to the energy shocks of
0: the 1970s. I'm now coming to the view that actually this could be worse than any of the previous shocks, because it's not just uh, oil, it's gas, it's coal, it's nuclear. And I think there's also the realization that this energy crisis did not begin on February 24th, when Russia invaded Ukraine, but really began late summer, early autumn of 2021, when the energy markets really tightened. And I think uh, it kind of gets lost in discussion, but I think there's been a recognition that uh, you can't have an energy transition without energy security, and that you can't simply stop doing one thing and replace it with something else that doesn't have the scale to do that. That there's a timing question here that really needs to be thought through and that there has been preemptive underinvestment in conventional energy. And you know that's gonna get you in a crisis and that's going to affect public opinion and public support. And that's going to have a political impact. And then it's been accentuated, of course, by the war. And so I think there's kind of a rethinking of uh,
4: energy transition. So then you, you used the phrase preemptive underinvestment. What is the right level of investment if we are preemptively underinvested, given the con- contradictory impulses, one, of course, to keep the lights on, keep granny from freezing, that's an imperative, absolute necessity. But at the same time, to move more ambitiously on climate to decarbonize energy systems, which requires a different kind of investment, perhaps in different kinds of well, fuels and technologies. Well,
0: the right level of investment is enough investment so you don't have shortages. So you don't have price spikes, so you don't have publics protesting, so you don't have governments voted out of power, because otherwise you can have a very
4: bumpy road ahead. Another dimension of the geopolitical question I wanted to talk to you about is the elephant in the room these days is Russia, and particularly with natural gas, but also with oil, from which it makes much more money, as you pointed out in the past. How do you think, if we take the longer view, the fallout of energy and geopolitics will play itself out in the fallout of this invasion and subsequent energy well, crisis.
0: To me, it really accentuates the trends that I was writing about in The New Map, which is, first of all, Russia gravitating towards China. I think now Russia ends up almost an economic dependency of China because the door to Europe is going to be slam shut. And I think geopolitically, Russia and China are aligned because they both believe the United States runs the international system. They don't think it's a collaborative international system. I think this really accentuates it. Uh, it raises real questions about energy supply. Russia has been absolutely an energy superpower. I think it's going to continue to be a very important player, but it's not, I don't think it's going to be an energy superpower anymore because it's just in the process of losing its most important market, which is called Europe. You hear a lot of people saying, understandably, given what's happened, why did you import a lot of Russian gas? And I think you have to look back to the collapse of the Soviet Union and say, what were you going to do? Not integrate Russia into the global economy with nuclear weapons? I think that if you say there was a mistake, the mistake was not building energy security to the system, building diversification to protect it. But I think it's also correct to say that what we're seeing now was in no one's scenario.
2: We've talked about Europe's energy crisis, but of course, we recently reported in The Economist as well about Africa's need for more energy and more green energy. Katrine, how can that continent be encouraged to industrialize in a more renewable, sustainable way?
1: Yeah, so this is obviously a really big issue. It's an issue that's being discussed here at COP, which is being portrayed certainly by some as an African COP. There's some resistance to that. Um, Africa is the most energy-poor continent. In our recent reporting, we described the amount of uh, energy that is used per person in sub-Saharan Africa as, I think, 185 kilowatt-hours a year. That's an order of magnitude different to the American consumption. We actually wrote that an American fridge uses more electricity than a typical African person. So that describes the scale of the challenge. Obviously, as Africa develops, it also needs to expand its energy use. And currently, a lot of that comes from carbon-rich sources.
2: I mean, how does Africa, uh, the continent, you know, industrialize in a way that is meaningful for the sort of green agenda going forward? Vijay, let's remember
4: the context. Africa is a continent that's going to suffer terribly from the consequences of climate change, but contributes below five percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. This is a, a continent that is about to enjoy a demographic dividend. That is, it has such a great number and boom of young people, productive workforce and has the opportunity to industrialize, to develop its economies. To do that, Africa needs energy. And so I think it's unconscionable to deny Africa the right to develop. And part of that energy mix is going to be fossil fuels. If we're lucky, it will not be coal burnt in the traditional way, but rather a phasing down of coal and a switch over to natural gas as a bridge fuel, and in particular, a rapid acceleration of of the plentiful renewable resources. The solar potential in numerous African countries is extremely, high. Africa actually has a phenomenal potential to produce green hydrogen, which is a derivative fuel from renewable energy that can be used in industrial processes. It can be used in long distance shipping and so on. I think that's the opportunity here. And that is going to require partnerships and in particular, maybe investment frameworks in a number of countries where investors constantly say, look, we're ready to invest, but We're concerned about investment securities, about foreign exchange risk, about the rule of law and contracts in Africa. And that's where African governments need to do some work themselves.
2: Okay, Katrine, as we wind up this conversation on energy, what do you think we might expect to see in the next few days at COP27 on the issue of energy? What are you looking forward to?
1: Now we're sort of gearing up towards the political conversation. There last year brought a bit of a surprise in that the COP26 text for the very first time called for a phasing down of fossil fuels. Now it was contentious. It was hotly debated right until the very last minute. It was initially meant to say that there was going to be a complete phase out of coal. And then India stepped in at the 11th hour to call for it to say phase down instead and to mention unabated coal, which refers to basically the possibility of having coal combined with carbon capture and storage so that you could greenify. That's not a term that most people like. The worst of fossil fuels, the dirtiest of fossil fuels. This year, interestingly, we've had some reports, now these are as yet unconfirmed, that India is coming back to this idea and in fact wants to widen it to phase down all fossil fuels, not just coal. Very, very early. That has just been reported. We don't know whether that's actually going to hold. And it might actually, at this point, just kind of be politicking. So, India throwing something in there because it doesn't want to be the bad boy on the block again, knowing full well that other countries are going to step in and oppose that. But it sounds like there could be some further discussion of how the UN treats the eventual decline of fossil fuels.
2: Vijay, it looks like this discussion about energy won't be going away anytime soon. I mean, not least in this COP forum. Could you tell us why next year's COP, number 28, is going to be so important for the energy industry? I mean, this one's barely finished, but we're already looking ahead.
4: Well, let's remember that context here. After having excluded the oil and gas industry from the COP last year, in effect, The industry was made to feel not only unwelcome, but shamed. Uh, An oil man that turned up on the sidelines from a major European company was booed off stage. Uh, At Egypt, we do see the energy industry included in the conversation. The next COP will actually be hosted by the United Arab Emirates, one of the world's biggest oil producers and one that has massive reserves that are going to be around for the next three or four decades. And therefore, we'll see a much stronger focus on how the energy industry itself can play a role as a decarbonizer. I think that's actually quite important. It's a more, in my view, grown up way of understanding the problem that oil and gas is here to stay. A number of countries, especially emerging markets, are gonna rely on it. Do you want a responsible oil and gas sector that actually takes a lot of steps, like dealing with fugitive methane emissions from the natural gas production chain? That's That's a huge impact on short-term greenhouse gas emissions on carbon capture and sequester technologies, on developing ways of using hydrogen from natural gas that would also reduce many of the emissions. These are things that are detested by some in the environmental community and the climate community. But I would say these guys aren't going away and you'd rather have them on side working on climate issues rather than on the outside stinking up the planet.
2: Indeed, that does make a lot of sense. Uh, Vijay, thanks very much for that. We'll wrap up the conversation there. Well, next time, we're going to finish this mini-series by dissecting the conclusions of COP27. So we look forward to that. But for now, Vijay and Katrine, thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Arnog.
4: Thank you.
2: Thanks also to Nicolas Hearn, Francesco La Camera, Jason Bordoff and Dan Jürgen. And of course, thank you for listening to Babbage. If you've missed them, don't forget to check out our previous two episodes on COP27. You'll find them at economist.com slash COP27 pod, along with a selection of other climate podcasts we've made this year. And you can stay up to date with all of our climate coverage written by Katrine, Vijay and the rest of the team by becoming a subscriber. Listeners can get a special introductory rate by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist.
6: Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, NA, copyright 2024.